Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice that we have a good, good Father. And that we can call you good, good Father because you sent your Son to bleed and die for us. And that we approach you as Father because of what He has done. And we have the power of the Spirit because of what He has done. And because you are a good, good Father. So as we turn, Father, Son, and Spirit to your Word in the Gospel of John, would you do your good work? And just like Krishna and the people of Nepal and the people of Thailand and the people of Clinton who are changed when they come face to face with Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would be changed, that we would come face to face with Jesus and that we would be transformed. We ask it in His name. Amen. We are in John chapter 2 as we make our way through John's Gospel. John chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 11, or verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, Draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to it so that we can understand it. So, if you were to watch... I don't know why you would, but let's say you want to watch the Miss America pageant or some other competition of the sort, right? You usually will hear this question, something, something along the lines of, what, what is the greatest problem in the world and how would you solve it? And oftentimes, right, the answers, they, the answers range from anything like illiteracy, world hunger, war, world 
piece, something along those lines, right? But it's, it's how that gets asked at those competitions, I have no idea. But it's probably a good question for you to think about. If you, if you had the power and the influence and the money, what problem would you solve? What would you do? What's the first thing you would do? I don't think anyone in here would have said, I would have saved a wedding party. Right? No one in here. If you had, if you had Jesus' power to do miracles, how would you start your ministry? It probably wouldn't be turning water into wine. It probably wouldn't be saving an embarrassed, well, saving a teenage groom from massive embarrassment. But that's what Jesus does. Jesus begins right here. He says it in verse 11. That's what John tells us, that this is the first of his signs. This is really the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And this is what he leads with. Not raising someone from the dead, not saving the life of a small child. He transforms water into wine. And John says that when he does that, it reveals his glory. It manifests his glory and his disciples believe, which is exactly what the signs are for. We already looked at John 20, right, where John says, the reason I'm recording these signs is so that you will believe who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And so here we have it, the first sign. The first one out of the gate is this, and it causes his disciples to believe. And so that begs the question from us, how in the world does this miracle reveal Jesus' glory? If that's the point. And in fact, if we're not... What John has said, right, that when we see Jesus' glory, that we receive grace. So if we don't see his glory, we won't receive grace. In order to receive his grace, we have to see his glory. How in the world does this simple... Well, simple. How in the world does this miracle, done in secret... Seemingly inconsequential, how in the world does this reveal Jesus' glory? And I think there are a few answers to the question. You see them on the screen behind me. We'll kind of start at the most obvious. Jesus is the creator. And what I mean by that is that he is the one who controls the physical world. He's not simply a good man. He's not simply a good teacher. He's not even simply... A great prophet, as some religions hold. No prophet ever did anything like this. I mean, what's astonishing about the miracle is how subtle it is. What, what magic words does Jesus say? What hand motions does Jesus do? At what point does he excuse the servants from the room and lay his hands on the jars and go, um? He doesn't. Right? Nothing is ever this easy for you. You expended more effort putting your feet on the floor when you got out of bed this morning than Jesus did in completely changing the molecular structure of the liquid in the jar. He did it like that, he did it without a word. The servants fill up the jars, they take a ladle out, and behold, it's wine. Jesus is the creator. He effortlessly controls the material universe. But that's just the surface. Jesus is a generous giver. See, in that day, the groom's job 
was to have everything for the wedding feast. And the wedding feast could last all week long. It was probably the biggest party this town was going to have. And everybody was going to be talking about it. And it was, the, it was the groom's responsibility to have the wine and to have the food and to make sure they didn't run out. Well, this guy's incompetent. And they run out. And if people find out that happens, also customary, right, he would have been incredibly embarrassed. And in a shame culture, now that may not be a big deal to you, but in Jesus' day, in this culture, and still in this part of the world today, to be shamed is almost like a second death. Right? Instead of everybody talking about how great the wedding feast was, they would have been talking about what a failure this man was and how he failed to provide what was necessary for his community and for his wife and for his family. And so Jesus bails him out. And the guy doesn't even know it. And not only, but not only does Jesus bail out this young man, he doesn't just provide wine. He provides the best wine. He provides over 150 gallons of the best wine. That's somewhere, by weight, that's somewhere between a black bear and a dairy cow. I, I googled that, okay? Just so we would have a frame of reference, all right? That's how much wine Jesus provides in these stone jars. And it's not the cheap stuff. Because what you did usually is you served the good stuff first, and as people got happy, nobody's, you know, they're probably not wasted, but as people started enjoying themselves, you started putting the cheaper stuff out there. But not Jesus. No, Jesus brings the best stuff. He saves the best for last. He's a generous giver. But even that is not really what's going on here. It displays Jesus' power as a generous and good creator. But the signs in John's gospel aren't just displays of power. They also say something more. They also reveal something more. And so to discover the real meaning of this miracle, we need to look at Jesus' conversation with his mother, who does not get a name in the story. She is kept at a distance. But Jesus and his friends, they get to the wedding. Mary is responsible, it looks like, for maybe helping the kitchen staff. And they run out of wine, which is unthinkable. And so she comes to Jesus, and we're not quite sure what she expects of him. She remembers the angels, right? She knows where Jesus is really from, and so she knows what he's capable of. But she also knows that he's resourceful, that it's probably Jesus who's been supporting the family because Joseph is not in the picture. Joseph probably died when Jesus was a boy, and so Mary has learned to lean on Jesus. And here again, she comes and she leans on Jesus. She needs his help. And he answers in a really odd way. First, he calls her woman, right? Something, something like we would use ma'am. Um, it's not all together. He's not being rude. He's not being curt. But he is, he is putting her at a distance. He doesn't call her mom. He doesn't call her mother. He just simply calls her woman. And he says, literally, 
what to you and me? Right? It's a Hebrew phrase that more or less means, what do you have to do with me? Why is this of my concern? In its, in its harshest form, this is actually what the demons say to Jesus when he, begins to, uh, when, he be, when he comes to cast them out. They say, what have you to do with us, son of man? Right? Don't bother us. Leave us alone. That's in its harshest form. Here, Jesus probably doesn't quite mean it like that, but he is making a point. Right? He is putting Mary at a distance, his own mother. In, a, in, a, in essence, he's saying, Mom, I know that you carried me. I know that you birthed me. I know that you taught me to walk. I know that you taught me to talk, to read, to count. That you taught me all of these things. But when it comes to my timetable, when it comes to me being the Messiah for the world, Mom, not even you get to make special requests. See, I don't belong to you anymore. I'm obedient, but I'm not obedient to you. I'm obedient to my Father in heaven. His is the voice that I must listen to. His is the timetable I've come to fulfill. And so he rebukes, he corrects Mary. He corrects his mother. Not even the mother of Jesus gets the inside track. And then he says something even odder. He says, my hour has not yet come. Which makes absolutely no sense. Until you realize that in John's gospel, the hour of Jesus is the hour of his death. He says it over and over again. And, he, and what he's pointing to, right, is his last hour, his final hours on earth. The hour when he will be glorified. And for him to enter his glory, he has to go through the cross. So the hour of his death. My hour has not yet come. So what does the hour have to do with this miracle? What does the cross have to do with the wine? And I think to answer that question, we need to hear again from Isaiah. Isaiah 25. Jesus is giving us... He goes ahead and he does the miracle... And to believe that he does the miracle because he wants to give us a visual picture of, what it, of who he is and what he came to do. Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8. This is 700 years before Jesus is born. Isaiah says this, On this mountain, that's Mount Zion where the temple is and consequently where Jesus will die. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. There will be feasting on the last day. There will be joy on the last day. And it's that day that John sees in Revelation 21. 
Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And now hear the voice of Isaiah. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Jesus is coming to make all things new, and he transforms water in, into wine to show us that. And did you notice that feast on the last day? It's a wedding feast. That party on the last day is a wedding party. It's actually Jesus' wedding. We learn that from Revelation 19. That Jesus is the one who's walking down the aisle to collect his bride. His bride, the church. It's a common image in the Bible that God is not just a king over his people. He's not just a shepherd over his sheep, but he is actually the husband of his people. And John the Baptist applies that to Jesus in John chapter 3. Paul the Apostle applies that to Jesus in Ephesians 5. Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the husband. And so here he is at this wedding feast. And when Mary says, they have no wine, Jesus knows, Jesus is looking at his own wedding. Do you know how Jesus is going to get to the altar? Do you know how we get to the feast, how God is going to provide this feast of rich food, of rich wine? The bridegroom has to spill his blood. Right? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And a lamb, well, a lamb is a sacrifice. And so, Jesus is showing us that He is the true bridegroom, the ultimate bridegroom, the groom to come, the one who will redeem His bride. But even more than that, taking it a step further, connected with that, this miracle reveals Jesus' glory because it shows us that Jesus is our ultimate purity. Did you notice what he used? Which, what water he used to transform into wine? He took these six stone water jars that are typically used for purification, not for drinking, but for bathing, for washing hands and bodies so that symbolically we could be clean before the Lord. Except they had to do it repeatedly. And Jesus takes that water He takes Moses' water, the water of the law, and he replaces it. He replaces it with his own wine, his own blood. In John 6, Jesus will say, unless you drink my blood, you have no life in you. In Revelation 19, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, it says that the church, the bride comes before the bridegroom clothed in clean white linen. How is it cleaned? Revelation 7:14, they have washed in the blood of the lamb. Do you want to be clean? 
Do you want to be known by God as a husband knows his wife? Then you must wash in the blood of the Lamb. The water of the, of the law will not do it. You cannot meddle with religion and expect to see God. You cannot come to the wedding in the dirty clothes you're wearing and, you, and no amount of religious washing will do. You must drink the wine of Jesus. You must bathe in the blood. So what would you do? What problem would you solve? What is the greatest problem in the world? When Mary says they have no wine, she speaks truer than she knows. We have no wine. We cannot celebrate. We come to the party empty-handed. We are this, this incompetent failure of a groom. And like this failure of a groom, we must take credit for the good wine that Jesus provides. We must take Jesus' wine. He is is the wine. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all. All. Their guilty stains. The miracle of turning water into wine is about the cleansing that Jesus provides. It's about Jesus replacing the old water of Judaism with the new wine of the kingdom and opening the fountain of his blood to the nations so that we can rejoice. Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light, he uses this analogy. He says, it's one thing to believe that God is good, but it's another thing altogether to actually taste it. It's kind of like believing that honey is sweet, but actually tasting honey to know its sweetness. When Jesus turns water into wine, he is inviting us to come and taste and see that he is good, to rejoice. So I urge you, come to the fountain. Come to Jesus. Drink the wine that he provides. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we rejoice, or we ought to. We ought to rejoice in the fact that you have provided a feast, well-aged wine, that you have provided yourself. That as we sang earlier, you, you are our lovely source of true delight. Oh God, that we would delight in you like that. That we would know you like that. And that we would long to come to the wedding. That we would long to sit at the table. And to be with you, Lord Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen.